What is resettlement? Basically, I think it's kind of like winning the lottery. This is Refugee Resettlement 101, hosted by FAFO Institute for Labor and Social Research. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the last episode of Refugee Resettlement 101. This is Ayşe Bilgehan Avdar, and today we have interesting topics as the role of the third countries, the resettlement countries. We have some discussions about the future of resettlement and if this is the right way to help people. I want to introduce my guests first, Ragna and Nerina. Welcome to our studio. Thank you, Aisha, for having us uh, on the podcast. Thank you. Well, Ragna, our listeners know you from the first episode, so I'm so happy that you're here again for the fourth episode. And Nerina, can you please uh, introduce yourself for our listeners to get to know you? Yes, I'm a social anthropologist who has worked with um, migration for the last 10-15 years. I've mostly been also interested in the anthropology of violence, what violence does to people, how they deal with conflict and violence. And in the refugee resettlement project, we are combining kind of both my interests. So. Mm -hmm. That is great to have you in our studio. So in the previous three episodes, we covered what resettlement is, the basic requirements for it, and the refugee situation in the world right now. We compared the small quotas for resettlement to the high numbers of refugees. And we discussed by ideas like vulnerability and promising victimhood are central to the selection of refugees for resettlement. We also heard that resettlement should ideally be about offering protection and sharing the burden or the responsibility of this with countries that host many refugees for long periods. In our last episode, we also heard an interview with Ali Mohammed, who is resettled in Norway. Ali shared his resettlement story and his perspective on resettlement from someone who has experienced it firsthand. So I want to start to this last episode with the third countries, which means the resettlement countries that receive the refugees. It's because there are three parties that resettlement activities have, which are refugees, UNHCR, and the third countries. We already talked about the other two, and now I feel like it is time to talk about the third party of this issue. So I wonder who is more powerful in this resettlement activities, UNHCR or the resettlement countries? Yeah, so uh, the countries that accept to receive refugees through resettlement, they do so at their own will. Um, they can freely choose how many refugees they will take or where they will resettle them from, even which types of refugees that they will consider and which individual refugees that they will accept. They can even choose to just stop or like pause the resettlement activities at any time. So I would say definitely that they hold most of the power, these countries that will resettle the refugees. And as an example, we can look to Sweden. Sweden just changed their resettlement criteria to say that now two-thirds of the refugees that they resettle should be women or girls. Uh, and there's nothing that UNHCR can do about that or the refugees that want resettlement. They can't also argue with that. They just have to comply with those rules if they want resettlement to Sweden. As another example, 
Could you tell us about which criteria Norway has for resettlement? I know that you both are researching this topic, so I want to hear from you. Yes, Norway has chosen three of the UNHCR vulnerability categories as prioritized groups for resettlement. The first one is women at risk. That means women who are considered particularly vulnerable in the current situation. These women are often single mothers of several children. And contrary to the UNHCR category, in the Norwegian category, these women must not have a male partner. Mm -hmm. So they have to be kind of unprotected. Another category is a family with children, and who counts as part of a family varies a bit from country to country. Uh, and it is not uncommon that also children over the age of 18 are included in this family uh, with children category. How big a family can be varies, and it varies according to Norway's um, resettlement capacity. So in recent years, Norway has mostly resettled families up to six family members, but there is also the possibility to take larger families. However, how many these can be depends and, and changes every year. So right now, where we have quite a lot of Ukrainian refugees as well, mm -hmm. municipalities would be reluctant to take many big families. Uh, another category is, is uh, the LGBTQI+. These are quite few in numbers, but are in an important category uh, in the sense that uh, the queer community is persecuted in many countries, also in the countries where refugees seek first refuge. So it's an important prioritization. So these are the main categories. And in addition, the Norwegian quota also entails a small number of medical cases that can be taken from the above categories or uh, outside. And this means that Norway is also taking um, people who, through treatment in Norway, can be restored to 90% mm -hmm. of their original health. In addition to kind of adhering to those categories, the refugees need to have clear protection needs. And of course, they must comply to Norwegian law. So refugees that have done or are in a life situation that is not compatible with Norwegian law cannot be taken, which means... Uh, families where there are two women. So polygamous families cannot be resettled to Norway as Norway doesn't allow polygamy, for instance. And it's the Norwegian government who decides on the categories and on the numbers of refugees to be resettled. And the yearly quota um, specifies also which national groups Norway can resettle and from where. And of course, these, also which groups and from where, will depend on the geopolitical situation. I guess it's true, like we mentioned in earlier episode, that the resettlement countries and their policies really shape refugees' access to resettlement, right? Yeah, we can say that. And, and now we heard how Norway has set up their criteria and we understand which refugees that Norway could take and maybe some that they would not take. For example, single men uh, will find it hard to be prioritized to Norway when they uh, prioritize women at risk and families. But we also should remember that resettlement countries have different policies. So if you are a man and your chance of going to Sweden or Norway has been reduced, perhaps there can be another country that is willing to accept you. And also, for example, USA is more flexible on uh, resettling groups of refugees without having strict criteria on the individual level. So there can be different uh, policies that give different opportunities. And what UNHCR does mostly is to negotiate with 
them on behalf of the refugees. I wonder if we can say UNHR's role is mainly being the bridge between refugees and resettlement countries and the main wheel is third countries. Yeah, you can say that. So a very important part of the UNHCR's resettlement work is being that bridge for the individual refugees, but also being an advocate for the needs and the interests of refugees worldwide. And we spoke a lot in the first episode about how the UNHCR has a difficult task when they have to select refugees for resettlement when there are so many refugees and so few opportunities. But I think that task that the UNHCR has of ensuring that there are countries that are willing to resettle, perhaps even more difficult sometimes. This advocacy uh, is especially important in the current political climate where there is a lot of tension around immigration. Uh, we see, for example, many political parties in the global north mobilizing on anti-immigration politics. So they want to make it harder for refugees to enter those countries, not easier. So I think the UNHCR has a difficult task there. Narina, do you want to add something? No, I think uh, Rangna covered it well that the UNHCR is an advocacy. So the main job is advocacy for the refugees and speaking up for the refugees' needs and trying to convince the global north and reminding them of their responsibility towards also the host countries that are currently taking the biggest burden of catering to the refugees' needs. So... To move on, can we talk about the changes have been made in the last years about resettlement? According to the strategy plan of resettlement that UNHCR shared recently, while several states increased their resettlement programs and pledged to continue to do so after uh, 2021, others reduced their commitments or extended the time frame for meeting them. What do you think about that? Yeah, so there's... Um There has been a lot of changes, actually. For example, we just mentioned like politics in the in the global north, but actually we also see now a wider variety of countries uh, participating in resettlement. For example, there have been more uh, countries in Latin America, more Asian countries, uh, and also a wider or longer list of European countries participating in resettlement. But the numbers uh, that these countries uh, resettle uh, varies a lot over time. And consistently, there are three big players in resettlement, we can say. So the US and Canada and Australia really take the largest number of refugees. Almost nine out of 10 refugees that are resettled go to one of those three countries alone. So their policies are really important. Uh, we saw that, for example, when Trump became the president in the US and he drastically reduced the resettlement to the US during his presidency. Now it, it has recovered a bit, but that was such a huge change for the whole resettlement activities. And after 2015, for example, uh, when there was a migration crisis uh, with lots of Syrian refugees, especially coming into Europe, uh, we saw an increase in countries in Europe interested in resettlement and willing to increase the numbers of refugees being resettled, especially the Syrian refugees. Now maybe we see the opposite effect of the Ukraine war, since there is a lot of Ukrainian refugees on the move around Europe. European uh, countries are maybe less willing to also commit to resettlement in uh, high numbers. There's another thing that I want to point out, which is quite recent and is a direct link between resettlement policies and migration control. We see that resettlement is used 
as a negotiation piece between countries uh, in Europe that want to control the European borders and block asylum seekers from entering the territories. For example, in a deal between the EU and Turkey, where Turkey promised to help Europe control that border, and in return, EU promised to resettle refugees from Turkey to Europe. We also see a similar agreement about uh, resettlement from countries uh, south of the Mediterranean to control migration from Africa to Europe. So this is a new pattern that there's several interests being served through these resettlement activities. It's not just about protecting refugees. And then there's some migration crises or refugee crises that we don't see have an effect on resettlement as, as the Rohingya crisis. So you could think that every time there's a new refugee crisis, the resettlement activities will respond to that, but it's not actually the same response every time. There were not lots of new countries signing up for resettlement or increasing their numbers to respond to that crisis. So there's a lot of politics at play around the resettlement activities. It's actually interesting that you took up the Rohingya crisis because this has been a topic, at least within the Norwegian resettlement bureaucracy. So there is a willingness to respond to the Rohingya crisis and actually to take Rohingya refugees. But then there are some practical um, hindrances. For instance, there are no translators mm. in Norway, which hinder the integration process. So one cannot take refugees to Norway without having enough interpreters to facilitate the integration process. But there's actually work going on to to train. So there, there's actually work going on to train the few Rohingya refugees who have come to Norway previously and to train them and to give them the translation license they need in order to work for the Norwegian bureaucracy. So it's not only not responding, but there is a certain response time especially if the refugee crisis entails people and languages that have not previously come to Norway. This is interesting. I, I didn't know that really. <laughs> and I want to ask a question that arises from the previous episode. Our guest Ali said that Western countries don't want to take black or Muslim refugees. So from the resettlement countries perspective, are there some refugees prioritized, especially before others? I I heard uh, Ali's remarks and I understand his perspective. So, And he's not the only one that has said this. A lot of people have pointed out that European states have been more willing to welcome large groups of Ukrainian refugees than refugees from other parts of the world. If we look at the refugees that are typically resettled in the last decade, large shares of those have been either African or Muslim or both. But in terms of numbers, if we compare the refugees that are resettled and other refugees that are accepted into uh, the same countries, then we haven't generally seen the same willingness as we see now with the war in Ukraine to accept large numbers of resettled refugees from Africa, from Muslim backgrounds and so forth. I think it's fair to ask if the capacity for resettlement of refugees could actually be much bigger in many European countries than what I have practiced uh, until now when we see the capacity for receiving Ukrainian refugees. Perhaps the will is more lacking. I think that especially the difference between welcoming Ukrainian refugees versus other asylum seekers, I think that this proved that the integration establishment is actually and the capacity to integrate is actually much bigger and larger than previously assumed. I think the bureaucrats are using that also against the municipalities that you have shown capability and an ability to actually integrate so many Ukrainian refugees. So just continue the good work. 
and take the others as well. So I think this is actually being used in a positive way to to push for new um, innovative ways of opening space for more refugees. For instance, uh, the housing markets where municipalities are finding housing for the uh, refugees. But I also want to point out that instead of talking about color or religion, there is another aspect that at least in the resettlement scheme is more important. And that is kind of the dichotomy between integratability as a possibility and the ability to become an active member of society and the protection needs. Because at least in the Norwegian selection missions, bureaucrats do not only consider the refugee protection needs, so whether they are refugees and are eligible for resettlement, but they also look at their potential for integration. That means they ask whether um, refugees uh, in time will be able to participate in the work market and in social life. And this might sound harsh on first sight, especially when the idea is that resettlement is catering to the most vulnerable refugees. But seen from an administrative and a bit more realistic way, I think that maintaining a balance between very vulnerable refugees with high needs that maybe never will be able to contribute to society and also um, including refugees that are considered vulnerable but who have a lot of potential Mm -hmm. um, in spite of their vulnerability. So having this balance, I think, is necessary to maintain the entire resettlement program because uh, if you only bring very, very, very chronically ill refugees to Norway, municipalities will in time refuse to accept them because they only cost money, but they will not participate. So this, and it, it took some time for me to actually realize the importance of, in order to maintain the resettlement scheme, and it actually in Norway, it has been maintained for a very long time, who needs this balance that you need refugees that can be integrated, contribute to society. And then you can also take those that will never be able to take part in the work market, for instance. Yes, we covered this issue a little bit with Ingen in mm. the second episode of our podcast, which I'm so happy to hear more about uh, the vulnerability of the refugees. And uh, like uh, I asked uh, if it's not enough to be uh, resettled. And um, uh, this is uh, more elaboration on that topic. Thank you for that. And I want to ask something different. Well, until now... Uh, we learned that a refugee should apply, have an interview, and then wait for the answer. But I wonder that what exactly the process of interview like? I mean, is there a, an exact date and some people are coming and taking the refugees from the list they have? And, you know, I imagine uh, that process as that. Is it what it is? Well, I think that the selection process is very different for each of the resettlement countries. So as we know, Norway best, it's the easiest to take the Norwegian example. So uh, in, the, in the Norwegian example, the local UNHCRs will present uh, Norway with a list of cases that they want Norway to consider. The bureaucrats will then uh, pre-select the cases. And in this pre-selection process, they will check that the refugees actually can be categorized within the, the selection categories and see if there are some clear reasons to exclude the refugees from resettlement. Um, then they will invite those selected, pre-selected refugees for an interview and selection missions will travel to the host country. And there are three different state institutions 
uh, involved in these selection missions. So employees of the Norwegian Migration Police will conduct an identity interview. It's the task of the police to uh, make sure that the refugees are who they claim to be. They will ask about the country of origin. They will talk about flight and family relations. And during the selection missions, it is also the police who takes pictures and fingerprints. And the pictures are used for travel documents. And the fingerprints are actually used so that the border control in Norway can make sure that the people who have been interviewed are also the people who come to Norway. Bureaucrats from the Norwegian Directorate of Immigration focus on the refugees' protection needs. So they will ask questions concerning the reasons why people left uh, their home country. They will touch upon the flight route and also focus on the refugees' current life in the host country. Their task is to make sure that the refugees are eligible for resettlement and actually have protection need. Finally, the bureaucrats of the Norwegian Directorate of Integration and Diversity, they focus on the refugees' ability, work experiences and their needs. And their task is to find the right municipality for the select refugees if the refugees are selected for resettlement. From the time of the interview until they arrive in Norway, it takes approximately six months, between three and six months. If the bureaucrats consider a family or particular refugees as very vulnerable in the current life situation, they may try to bring them to Norway earlier. That makes sense. Uh, thank you. And I would also ask, if it's possible, what kind of questions they ask and what kind of answers they're waiting for? We haven't been part of the interview situations themselves, but we have quite good insights into the interview methodology that is used. And at least also in the identity interviews, there will be a lot of direct questions. Uh, what is your name? Where were you born? What is the village called? Can you explain? So sometimes people come from very small places and then they would ask, let them describe the place, let them describe kind of distances to the next city. So just to make sure that people actually come from where they come from. In the interviews with the protection needs, uh, the aim is to make the refugees tell their own story. So uh, the bureaucrats will use quite a lot of time to prepare um, that story, but then they will invite the refugees to just talk freely. And some refugees are really good in doing so. They can talk for hours and give very detailed descriptions of their life, of their family, of their experiences. And other refugees um, struggle to do so. And if that is the case, then the bureaucrats will ask more specific questions. Can you? So first they will say, please tell me about the reasons of your flight, how you came here and how your life is. And then they would like the refugees just to take the space and to talk. If they are unable to do so, then they will ask more, more direct questions. So then they will say, okay, can you first tell me about um, where you come from? And then they might just answer, I come from this village. Okay, can you say a bit more about the village? Okay, then they do that. And then can you please tell me why you fled? I fled because it was dangerous. Okay, then can you please elaborate <laughs> on this? So the, the aim of that narrative is to get as much details as possible about the story. And the aim is not to ask direct questions that can be answered by yes and no. It should always be the open how, why, what. So it should always be an open question that can invite uh, a bit, a, a larger story. 
I actually know the least how in the integration interviews uh, work, but also here they adhere to this idea of the free story. So they will probably combine more direct questions concerning needs, health, education. So they have kind of to cover a number of questions that are similar to the police. And so how long did you go to school? Um, what is your educational background and so on will be more direct. But they will also invite the refugees to actually talk freely. And the difference there is that the integration interview is with all the members of the family, at least all the ones that are old enough to participate, because this is about their future in Norway. They're all going to Norway to start a new life. And uh, this is to like prepare a little bit for their first weeks, at least in Norway, to see if there's any special needs that needs to be addressed uh, and talk about their ideas about going to Norway and their hopes and, and what they bring with them. So while the protection interview can be done by one member of the family who speaks on behalf of the others about their background, then the interview about integration and future in Norway should be with all the individual members because they are different. And it's also quite fun that uh, at least uh, in, in the immigration interviews, they also ask about the hobbies and the wishes for the future. And sometimes they get fantastic answers, um, especially when they talk with the children, where they ask for particular types of sport that they maybe uh, have started up in the refugee camp and uh, Aikido. Suddenly there is some some voluntary <laughs> group that, that starts some kind of sport that the, the children are really into. So that we talk about that. But in other cases, when they ask about what are your hobbies, then the refugees will not understand the question because in the life situation there are there is just no time for hobbies. And I think that many of the bureaucrats do not expect an answer, but these interviews are also a way to open up a space of thinking that if you're selected, there is actually the possibility for you to consider that what kind of interests you have, that you actually can consider, think about your own interests and not only to survive. Yeah, this was so... Actually, fun to listen. <laughs> I was wondering about that. Thank you. And my final question uh, of all uh, this podcast is going to be, where do you think the future of resettlement is going? What is waiting for resettlement in 10 years or in a further future? Yeah, that is a big question. Um, and I wish I had a, like a, a magical eye to see into the future. Uh <laughs> There's, I only wonder your opinion. Yeah, I think there are some uh, reasons to be worried and there's some reasons to be hopeful for the future of resettlement. So let's do the worries first. We know that there are some uh, huge challenges for humanitarian work in the world today and these challenges are growing. There is a rise in the number of conflicts and conflicts tend to last longer. There's a rising number of refugees as a result of that. The whole worldview that humanitarian action is built on is under pressure. The whole idea that we need to show solidarity and extend help to people in need. Uh, it's under pressure from this global liberal backlash and the rise in authoritarianism as well as populism that we have touched on briefly. And there is kind of as a result of that also a huge and growing gap in funding available to cover humanitarian needs. So this means that those implementing refugee resettlement and also other humanitarian activities will have to keep making very tough decisions about what and who to prioritize. So I think we'll see like harsh competition and a struggle to keep the very idea alive that resettlement can be part of the solution for protecting refugees. 
And there's already an ongoing discussion if if this is the best way to help. Uh, is it too expensive to resettle refugees versus spending more money in the countries that host the large numbers of refugees? That's, that's an ongoing debate and it's very hard to find a solution or a final answer for that. On the other hand, I mean, resettlement has been around for uh, more than half a decade and I think it's going to continue. And I say that because there is always a lot of change in migration flows and refugee policies. Uh, we mentioned already that the numbers uh, that of refugees go up and down and the willingness to resettle goes up and down. But it is uh, at the same time persistent. Many of the countries that resettled refugees today have done so for a very long time through these changes. I think they will continue. Um, perhaps we can see some new ways of doing it. Uh, like Canada has been trying to export uh, their model, which is based on private sponsorship. We see that some countries like the UK and Germany have been trying out this way of doing resettlement. Perhaps that can expand the access to resettlement. And like I mentioned earlier, the list of countries that have resettled refugees is also uh, continuously growing. Today, that list includes over 45 countries from all the continents of the world. And there are still many more countries that could be included uh, on that list. Thank you, uh, Ragna, for this opinions. And thank you all. Uh, this was an episode that I really enjoyed recording. And I hope our listeners also enjoyed listening to this episode and all of this podcast. Before I give my closing sentences, I want to give uh, the floor to you if you have additional comments uh, and goodbye sentences. Yeah, I, I think I would like to also end on this positive note that Rangna um, kind of ended with. The people who work in the resettlement process, they work within very strict rules. So the action space is not very large. The categories they can select in are pre-decided upon. The numbers are a political decision. Um, but from our work with the bureaucrats, I think it's amazing to see the goodwill the bureaucrats themselves show towards the refugees. They are super aware of the fact that they are what the research calls the faces of the state, that they are the first people refugees meet from the Norwegian state, and that their meeting with the refugees actually will pave the way where the refugees will trust the Norwegian establishment, whether they will have hope for their future life, or whether they actually will feel rejected, um, distrusted and without hope. And I think in the work they do, so they cannot choose to select more refugees. They don't have the possibility to do so, but they can do a good job with the few refugees they actually meet. And in the meetings, there is a lot of goodwill. There is a lot of consciousness that their work is super important, that they decide basically what life and death in the worst <laughs> scenarios and they're very conscious about this so this idea that bureaucrats deal with numbers does definitely not apply when it comes to the resettlement bureaucracy yes and uh, thank you Ragna yeah I think uh, I just want to say uh, thanks for uh, facilitating these interesting discussions about resettlement it has been very fun to uh, be part of this uh, podcast and discuss all these questions with you my thank pleasure you. Thank you both. Well, there's a saying, as every beautiful thing has an ending, and this is the ending of Refugee Resettlement 101. I want to thank each uh, and all of my guests who contributed a lot, and I also want to thank you all, our dear listeners, if you made it to this point. So I am glad we made it together. 
Have you ever imagined, while you were listening to this podcast, what other people were doing in another part of the world? I've always wondered that, kind of like a parallel universe, but not another universe we need to imagine. It's only the other part of the world. So in this last part of this podcast, I want you to think about that too. Somewhere, maybe a girl fell off a swing, her mother rushed to help. Somewhere, a man paid for his ice cream and started walking with a smile on his face. Or we can think the other face of the medallion. Somewhere, a person was struggling to get the right to live. Maybe in Syria, maybe in Somalia, or maybe anywhere in the world. So remember, if we can feel pain, we are alive. If we can feel another's pain, we are human. Stay safe, Daryl. Thank you.